encouraged to be here with you today. Um, want to, who are out of town. Um, Lauren and LW both are out of town. Uh, Lauren for a couple of weeks, LW for the whole summer, so if you would remember them. Tom and Miranda are out for a couple of weeks until Miranda has her surgery, so if you will remember them, they're trying to stay protected and um, she needs the surgery and want to try to do as much as they can to uh, protect her from maybe catching uh, something, not just COVID, but anything that would prevent her from being able to have surgery. Um, but uh, just uh, invite you, if you will, to continue to remember them. Uh, remember Brian Smith, if you will, uh, Brian's brother uh, is, uh, we prayed for him over the course of the last uh, year, in fact, um, who has cancer. Um, he has been given two months. Uh, the doctors have said he has about two months. So Brian will be connecting with that family and, uh, and with his brother here over the course of the next couple of months. But if you will just, uh, just remember those. I know that I'm for forgetting some in the course of that, but just remember them and reach out to them during the course of the week. Um, of course, we know that uh, most often when Rod and Teresa are not here, it's because they're ministering somewhere um, and that's where they are today. So uh, if you will remember them, and I was uh, encouraged to get a note from them just saying that they were praying for us in the service today. Um, it's, uh, the service would have been the same, and I'm saying this in that everything that we're doing today has been planned and preordained by God. But we are in our text where we are by virtue that we are working through Matthew's gospel and we have arrived at chapter 13. So our text today is specific to the series and God knew that in eternity past. Uh, I want to say just so happened, but it's not really just so happened. But it also winds up being a day that is the Sunday before we're sending out a team to do some of the very things that we will be talking about uh, today as it relates to the kingdom. Uh, so uh, I guess for uh, those who are here that are saying, well, it looks like all this stuff is coming together because we're sending out a team. Yes, it is, but that is by God's plan and design. It wasn't by ours when we laid the text out and that we would be preaching and working through Matthew's gospel. We didn't know that it was going to wind up on today. So I hope that even our call to worship uh, and our confession and our songs that we have sung will all kind of come full orb with you today as you reflect on our text. So if you have your copies of scripture if you will turn to Matthew uh, chapter 13 um, just in kind of way of a few introductory remarks I want to remind us of where we are in Matthew's gospel uh, I want you to remember we've called back but remember back in Matthew chapter 3 um, John the Baptist announced that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the king is coming. Okay? He said that. And he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire with a winnowing fork in his hand. And then he baptized Jesus shortly there uh, in the text. And then don't forget what happened then. The Father spoke from heaven and he identified Jesus 
And then the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus. And I want you to think about that for just a moment in light of where we've been in the 12 chapters of Matthew. I believe it's clear to say that that event in and of itself should have removed all doubt regarding the identity of Jesus. At least for all who could hear the voice from heaven. As we tracked along following Jesus' ministry and His teaching, not much change has changed over the course of uh, these 12 chapters. Jesus has been teaching with authority, an authority, mind you, that distinguished Him from all other rabbis and all other teachers of the day. Uh, in fact, early on in Mark's Gospel, this is what we read. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. In other words, he was set apart from all the other teachers. And it's noticeably clear that there is something different about not only Jesus' teachings, but the things that he is doing. He's healing. He's casting out demons. He's performing great signs like none of them have ever seen. And he was raising the dead. Now think about that for a moment. Just let that rest on you. And while he is turning the world in Palestine upside down, if you will, you would think that everyone would be running to him to believe whatever he said about himself and about who he was and about their lives and the condition of their lives and about life. You would think that they would just be point on. I can't, I've got to see him. I've got to be with him. I've got to hear this. Um, but as we noted, very little changed. Crowds were gathering, certainly, and uh, there was an interest uh, to some degree uh, and his, in him and kind of in his presence, and it was kind of peaking along the way, but there was very little substantive change that had happened. I wonder, having said that even now, with all that we have heard, with all that we've seen, with all that we have experienced in our lives as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder if there has much changed in our life substantially. Jesus had healed people. He had taught people. But most people were keeping a safe distance from Him. Religious people in particular were standing up against him. And as we saw, as we concluded, began chapter 12 several weeks ago, we saw that the religious leaders had even begun plotting to kill him. Resistance to Jesus and the kingdom he was established, they were mounting. But as we hear throughout the Gospels, his time had not yet come. That is, it, his time to be glorified, the ultimate moment for which He came. It hadn't come. It had not come time for Him to do the work that we know Him for today. That if we are to have salvation, that we have to believe and trust in Him for, and that is His death and His resurrection. That time had not yet come. And so how does Jesus respond in the midst of all of this? Well, he responds in two ways. One, not related to this text, but we read in others and throughout the gospel that he removes himself from certain places. 
He even travels to, to get out from the tension and everything that is going on to kind of draw the attention away from Him. To move out of the way of that which ultimately threatens His glorification. There's something there for us to hear, but just hear it from John's Gospel. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, talking about the raising of Lazarus, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this on his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And then this is what Jesus did. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went and from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. That's just an example. But we also see that he increased his use of parables. So he, he gets out of the way of those things that threaten what he has come to do until it is time for him to do it. But we also recognize in our text today, and we'll read in just a moment, that he increased his use of parables in teaching his disciples and the crowds. We see this here in Matthew 13. Right after Jesus tells the parable of the sower to his disciples, his disciples posed this question. Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus gives them two reasons. I want us to look at these two reasons before we move into the parable. So, Rather than reading verses 1 through 9, I want you to skip to verse 10. And let's hear what Jesus had to say. When the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Remember now, this is a response to all of that that is mounting against Jesus. All the resistance that is coming to the message of the kingdom. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he'll have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he says this, this is what he's saying, he's answering the question. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, and we read it earlier in our confession, but hear it again. You will indeed hear, but never understand. 
you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now look down in verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowd. He, we have some parables. You're going to be dealing with those over the course of the next couple of weeks. One of them we're going to deal with today. But all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And he's pointing back to the psalmist. He said, I will open their mouths in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Okay? So, what are the reasons that Jesus now begins to speak in parables, even to the point that in verse 34 we hear that all, the thing, all these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables, indeed He said nothing to them without a parable. Well, there's two reasons. First, to conceal, and second, to reveal. You may want to jot those down. Now, we would immediately think that any teacher would want those he was teaching to understand what it was he was teaching. And you'd be correct. I'm hoping today, as we teach here today, that we get it, that we understand but remember, as we concluded in chapter 12, we saw that there are those who are believers. We recognize that. In fact, we ended last week at a place where there was a distinction made between those who were believers. In other words, the ultimate relationship, the ultimate relationship in the kingdom, the ultimate relationship with the church and then those relationships that are not ultimate. And he wasn't saying that his family were unbelievers. He was just drawing a distinction because everything in chapter 12 had been pointing to those. Some were receiving, some were believing, and some were not. And so in the course of this, we recognize that there are those two different groups of people. There are those who were coming to faith in Christ, coming to believe in Him, and then there were those who... We're not. There were those who the more they saw and the more they heard, the more they felt threatened by him and hated him and wanted him dead. Those are the responses that we see. And it really doesn't make any sense to us, does it? In other words, we've already said God has spoken from heaven and said, this is my son. We would think that folks would be flocking to him, but they're not. So what we see is, is that Jesus doesn't stop teaching his mission doesn't stop he doesn't stop teaching in such a way that those who are resistant to him will not understand and those who are receiving him will understand so he continues to teach in some respects it's kind of parables kind of like speaking in code if you will um, how many of you are familiar with the name alan turing anyone i'm curious Must not have any World War II history buffs. I'm not either, by the way. This is just from, I'm not putting myself up. I just, I've read about him, heard about him. Um, 
Some of you may have seen the 2014 movie, The Imitation Game. Anybody watch that movie? Okay, well, then you have been at least introduced to Alan Turing. Um, during World War II, the Germans and their allies developed this code by which they communicated with. And the Navy in particular, and they were very successful, uh, but Alan Turing, a mathematician, became very instrumental in breaking the code and his breaking that code was incredibly significant in the outcome of the war. Because once he broke that code, the United States and their allies began intercepting their messages, particularly about their, uh, their naval in, in maneuvers, uh, and uh, the tide began to turn, so to speak. Well, Jesus' parables were much this way. Now, no one's cracked the code, by the way. That's not the point. The point is, is that the parable is almost in a code because those who are believing are hearing it and understanding it, and they are continuing to look to the kingdom. And those who are unbelievers who are hearing it, they don't understand anymore. In fact, uh, their resistance to some degree because they are not understanding what's taking place with the kingdom is kind of quelled it to some degree. But what we see is, is that the parables were intended to communicate truth to those who longed to hear it, but it concealed it from those who didn't want to hear it. And this brings up an important question. Why would Jesus conceal Listen to this now. Why would Jesus conceal truth to some and reveal truth to some? As we read throughout Scripture, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are held up. We're always trying to wade through that. A group of us men were together last Monday morning and we were dealing with some of these same issues where they're held up and we see it right here again, full force in the text. What's interesting is that the biblical writers don't try to hide it. You know why? Well, because God wasn't trying to cover it up. They didn't cover it up. God wasn't trying to cover that up. And we know that because we are introduced throughout the course of the pages of Scripture, these texts that point us to, man, this is strange. There's something going on here. Genesis chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. We remember the story of Joseph. We remember how his brothers um, uh, sought to kill him. By the providence of God, they didn't kill him. They sold him into slavery. Gets to the very end of Genesis after he has revealed himself to his brothers and all that is going on. And Joseph said to them, do not fear. In other words, don't fear me. I, I'm not going to retaliate against you now that daddy's dead. I'm not going to come after you. He said, don't fear. For I'm in the place, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. 
the workings of man and the workings of God, and they are running along on this same path in the course of God's sovereignty and then the actions of man and their responsibilities. In Judges chapter 14 and verse 4, we're reminded of Samson. Samson sought after a woman who was a non-Jewish woman for his wife. And God's word says all along the way from the giving of the law, and even, even, even before it was understood, but the giving of the law was what? Is that they were to restrict themselves in their marriages to their people. And Samson wasn't going to have any part of that. And in chapter 14 and verse 4 of Judges, his father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. God had given his law. Samson was working against that law. And his parents didn't know that. But what do we hear from the Biblical text. They didn't know what was from the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, you jot these down. Isaiah writes, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. What, had, what was he talking about? Well, Assyria had come and had taken over, destroyed the northern kingdom. It's what they had done. God's people. And God said, they are a rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send them, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire. Of the streets. And he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. In Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, hear these words, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the heart of Zerubbabel and the son of Shutel, and governor of Judah and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat and the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the, of the Lord of hosts, their God. God at work in the midst of the people. And then in John chapter 11, verses 49 through 52, but one of them, we read it just a moment ago, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this on his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied. Meaning what? He had gotten that word from God. That Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only. But also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So when Jesus explains his reasons to his disciples... 
He supports it as the fulfillment of prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. Let's go back and look at that again. There in the latter part of verse 14. You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, hardened, and with their eyes, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Notice that Isaiah will go and preach to the people, but they will not listen. And Jesus gives the answer as to why. The people's hearts have grown dull, and with their ears they barely hear, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand the heart, understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So we see that some, at least, have been given the ability to hear and to understand. Look back over in Matthew 13, in verse 11. And he answered them, and he says this. This is what Jesus says. He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. To you. But to them it has not been given. You catch that? Some, you, the disciples, those who are believing, it has been given to you to understand and to see these things, these mysteries, these secrets, but to others it has not been given. What's the point that is being made? Well, some get it and some don't. And it seems that in the course of this, it is given to them or it is not. So what are we to make of that? What are we to make of it? Well, let's look at what... Paul writes to Timothy. Turn with me to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge, Paul's writing to Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Okay? Now, this is where we get for praying for the kings and part of what we get for praying for the kings and praying for the government. For the kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. And then Paul goes on to say, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now I want you to hold that. Okay? Hold that. Here we see that Paul writes to Timothy that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But now let's go on because that's not all that's said. So turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 24. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 24. Another letter to Timothy, but still to Timothy, still Paul writing it. Paul goes on to say this. He said, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, 
correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Same thing that he had just said, okay, that God desires for all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We're talking here about the knowledge of the truth. Same thing, same thing he's talking about. The knowledge of the truth leads to salvation. Adam pointed back to it earlier in looking at Romans chapter 10. Uh, how are they going to believe? How are they going to believe uh, if, 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 no one, if, if no one tells them? They only believe by being told and coming to understand the knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, without digging too deep into these two passages, because that's not our text, but it is to help us to get to where we're going, we can say at least two things. One is that God desires, does desire that all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Scripture says that. The second thing that we can say is that God grants some people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Both of those texts, both to Timothy. And, and I think it is safe to say that that does not in any way remove God's heart for mission. And I want to point back to a text that we looked at just a few weeks ago. Look back over in chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, remember all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray, how? Earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. So it doesn't remove any commitment that God has to mission. So He desires all to be saved. He grants some to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. And yet we see this overarching message of missions. I want you to understand that because without this understanding, these parables will not make sense. In fact, without this understanding, not only these parables not make sense, our sending a team to share the gospel to northern Ghana or wherever you would go doesn't make sense. In other words, our mission only makes sense in the context of God's providence and what He does and what He will and what He can do. So stating those things, maybe to help us reconcile what Jesus has stated, the purpose of teaching in parables. That's our point. For some, it'll be revelation of truth. And for others, the truth will be concealed. Now, there's seven parables in Matthew chapter 13. 
when we began studying Matthew, we said that there were five sections of teaching. Chapter 13 is the third section of teaching. Of, of teaching that Jesus does. And he teaches these seven parables in this chapter. I want us to look at the first parable. So back up in chapter 13 in verse 1. That same day, meaning the same day that he had just uh, been confronted there in the house where it was full and his uh, mother and brothers had come, that very same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat, and he sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, okay? So, we know why he taught in parables. Parables is a story with a teaching laid down alongside of it. In other words, he's teaching in parables. There is a message to be gotten and we've already seen that some will get it and some won't. For some it will be revelation. For some it will be to conceal certain things. And here is the parable that he taught. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil. And immediately they sprang up. And since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then Jesus says this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here, in the story, in the story, that's when the disciples came and said, why do you speak to them like that? And then we just saw. Now look in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. So he had dealt with why he taught. And now he comes back, he says, hear then the parable of the sower. In other words, let's go back to the parable. Let's go back to the parable. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, and, and as for what was sown among the thorns, well, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And as for what was sown in good soil, well, this is the one who hears the word. He understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. 
So what's the point? He talked. Then he comes back and he gives the interpretation of it. In other words, he tells the meaning of it. So what are we to do with that? What are we to do with that? I think there are a few things that are, are the truths that Jesus intends to communicate with what he says and what he doesn't say. It won't take but a few minutes to go through these. They probably will not be new to some of you, but listen to them. For those of you who have ears to hear. First, there is no deficiency in the sower. While it isn't stated, it seems to be implied that the sower is Jesus. Why? Because he is talking, he has been teaching the kingdom. He has been saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's been talking about the kingdom of God. He's been telling them, teaching them. He's going to continue to teach them. Remember what John the Baptist says? He said, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is coming. In fact, the king is here. Jesus has been saying that. That's what we've been dealing with these last nine chapters at least, is that the king is here. And he has been saying and showing, and God has been revealing that the king was there. And the kingdom was being established. And we said all along the way they didn't understand it. And Jesus is trying to make it clear to them. So the, the sower is Jesus. But it's not just Jesus. It's everyone then who would come. Because this had bearing on the disciples. This had bearing on what was going to happen from this point on. This had bearing from when that time that Jesus did the work that he was called to do and he would be removed and he would go back to be with the Father. When he would ascend, the message was going to continue to be proclaimed. So it was everyone who would sow this seed of the gospel. He's saying there's no deficiency here in the sower. In other words, when he is looking at this and we're getting down to whether fruit is being born or not, he is not pointing back to the sower and saying, well, if the sower had done something a little different. How many of you have ever planted something and it wasn't fruitful and you wondered if the person planting had done something a little different, maybe it would have worked. Mark Kramer has a famous fig tree. For those of you who have visited the Kramer household, you will know sitting right at the back corner of the garage, there's this fig tree. And the figs are great. Well, he knows I love figs, so he rooted me a couple of fig trees, and he told me about how to plant them. Uh, this was back when I had a yard and I could plant, and I went and I did everything that he told me. Uh, and I dug the hole big, and he said that fig trees do better if the roots can be partially bound. In other words, not just planted out, but if you partially would bind the roots in some way that it would produce more fruit. So I dug my hole. I got everything just right. I went and got bricks, and I stacked bricks, leaving holes for some roots to go through and some roots to be bound. It had no bearing on it. So then I wondered if the master planner back here had given me the right information or if the planner 
should have done something different. But that's not what Jesus does here. He doesn't point back to the sower. He doesn't point back to the planter. No. He has been teaching all along this message. And it has... It was coming from the one who had developed the message, the one who had planned the message. He was teaching that the kingdom of God was there. Talking about the reign and the authority of God. Man's sin and rebellion against God. Man's need to be reconciled to God. God's work in bringing that reconciliation through the work of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, this Messiah King, the one who was going to die for the sins of His people. Remember we read that in John 11 when it was being prophesied that it would be was best for the one to die so that not just the nation but even beyond the nation would be saved. And Caiaphas had absolutely no clue what he was saying. He was just opening his mouth and it was coming out. It was prophetic. But he didn't know what he was saying about this man. He's teaching that while the kingdom has no limits, that it will impact all of creation. And he has been saying this. He's not talking about a geopolitical kingdom. He's not talking about a kingdom where, where men and women rise to power here on earth. He wasn't talking about a kingdom that was intended to restore any earthly or temporal purposes. In other words, he was teaching the exact opposite. But the no deficiency in the sower. And there's no deficiency in the seed. How many of us have ever planted something and it not produce and we felt like we had bad seed? I have. Planted beans and replanted beans and replanted them again and was convinced that when they didn't germinate that the seed were not good. But that's not what Jesus says in this parable. He's not pointing to any deficiency in the seed. In fact, by virtue of silence, he's saying this seed, the message of the kingdom, is not deficient. This is the point that needs to be stressed here. We don't need to monkey with the message. We don't need to try to make the message of the kingdom of God. We don't need to try to make the gospel more palatable. But how many times do we see the church, if it is in fact the church, trying to somehow shape the message of the gospel so that it becomes more palatable? Maybe even a better question is, is to ask, how many times have we approached someone and we have been afraid to share the gospel for what it really is? For the way that Scripture teaches it. For fear that it would not be received. So we leave a little piece of it out. Or we change it a little bit. So that hopefully it would be received. This sower sows this message indiscriminately. In exactly the way that it is to be delivered notice that three force one two three there are four groups of people and three fourths of these hear the message in the same way Jesus is saying the exact same message 
and three, at least three-fourths, and we're not, I'm just saying three-fourths of the number that he gives for examples. Three-fourths of them, in some way, turn away from it. Third, he does say this, that there is a fundamental deficiency in the hearts of all men. Sin, man's rebellion. And Jesus identifies three responses coming out of that. And these responses reflect the sin and rebellion and a lack of faith in God and His provision of salvation. The first one we see, and it's interesting, I, I don't know, the one whose heart is hardened because these souls are the key. The hearts of the men are the key, which is why we looked at why He talked and spoke in parables is that it is related back to the heart of men and there is a responsibility to be carried for the way the heart responds to the message of the gospel. The hardened heart. This is the heart of the person who is indifferent to God. Indifferent to the message of the kingdom. Can be seen in a person who hears the message and think it to be foolishness, untrue, unreasonable, too restrictive, who looks at Jesus and says, nah, who looks at him and says, I'm okay with him being a good teacher, looks at Jesus and says, I don't even know if he was really real, I don't even know if the Bible or any of the rest of the history that says anything about him. That person, that kind of person, is the one, notice, that is hardened and they have nothing to do with the gospel. It is the person that will ride by church after church after church. And who want nothing to do with the hearing of the gospel. I, I do find it interesting, if you will, look. Jesus had said in the story, when he told the story, he said, uh, that it was the one said that the sower went out and sowed, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And then, if you'll look over in verse 18, it says, And the evil one comes and snatches away. In, in other words, there is a demonic work going on there to cloud, to take away, to rob. There's something dark here in the midst of this hardened heart. It's not anything that can be blamed to Satan. It is telling us the deficiency of the heart of man. Notice the second group are those who hear the gospel and notice what it says. They immediately, listen, the word immediately is used two times immediately receive it with joy. And then when tribulation and persecution comes, the same word again, they immediately fall away. They hear it. That's for me. I'm ready. Let's go. And as soon as things are difficult, I'm gone. Let's go, and I'm gone. There are people who are quick to respond without considering the gospel and what it means. I want to interject this. 
and, and you know how we have taught here and you know how we teach every week and this is our heart and you know we are not we, we will not turn anyone we don't want to turn anyone away from Jesus and, and, and we are not in one sense we are not here to determine who is and who is not a believer but we are always so careful because there are those who will respond immediately and we don't want them to have a false sense of what it is to say, I am a follower of Christ. And then there are those who say, well, that makes no difference. You have no control over that. No, we don't have any control over it. But my goodness, we need to be concerned. And we need to express that concern. And the way that we express that concern is that we rehearse the gospel over and over and over again. And that is the reason that every week here, in every aspect of our service, we are rehearsing the gospel over and over and over again. Why? For fear that some who would say, I believe, would fall away. Notice, we see what happens. Their type of fair-weather believer. We see that because when hardship and persecution come, they fall away. And Jesus' point is, they were never believers. Get that. They were never believers. We won't go back there and read these passages, but be reminded of what we read and worked through when we worked through Hebrews together. Repeatedly, the author of Hebrews says what? In chapter 3, he says, be careful that you don't fall away. In chapter 6, be careful that you don't fall away. Is that a problem? Apparently it was. Apparently it was. Apparently it still is. We know people who have fallen away, who once professed. Hardship came, and now they, we say they have, they abandoned, and they will say, I abandoned my faith. And we would say today what? No, you never had faith. You never had faith. You accepted with joy immediately, but you never had saving faith. Jesus tells us to expect hardship and persecution he said it this way, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. We didn't look at it in detail, but we will in some months ahead. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What does it mean? Believe till death. Believe to the end. And then we hear of the third group. The ones who seed fell in the thorns. They're the ones who are easily distracted. They love the world and the things of the world more than they love God. John knew that that was an apparent problem in the church. So what did he write when he wrote his letter to the church? 
He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Jesus was fully aware of the challenges associated with the cares of the world and wealth. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19, just a few pages. Verse 16, And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, Well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I've kept, what what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And the young man heard this, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions now we think okay uh, that's a an account I, i see that but notice how that comes up again and jesus said to his disciples truly i say to you only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven what is he saying he said the cares of this world the cares of this world are a primary concern for most He said, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then there is the fourth group. Let's notice something about them. Something different about the heart. We already know it's not good because they've made it good. But by the grace of God, this heart is made to see that the ultimate value is in Jesus. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But the ultimate value rests in the kingdom. And so what do they do? They forsake the world... And they embrace the gospel. They embrace Christ. What do they do? When persecuted, they hold on to Christ. When martyred, they hold on to Him to the end. They bear fruit. And it varies. It varies. But they are not given to the cares of the world and to the hardship and suffering that comes, they say, whate'er my God ordains is right. And they hold on to Him. Two things in closing.
Which heart is yours? Which heart is yours? And two, and I want to thank you for interceding on our behalf as we leave. The other part of the fruit bearing is that of sharing the message of the gospel. We will teach, I will preach, we will tell Bible story after Bible story after Bible story pointing to the gospel in Christ. We will be crystal clear in that. We have 300 SD cards that we packed up yesterday, all including the Jesus film uh, and the Bible in the language. In fact, there are six different languages we're carrying. Uh, We have... Bible storytellers with Scripture on them where folks will sit in small groups of people and listen to the Bible and listen to the message of the Gospel. We will work to encourage the indigenous workers that we are currently partnering with toward church planning. had two questions asked of me yesterday. Went by to pick up my medication, said, where are you going on vacation? I said, I'm not. Well, where are you going? I said, to northern Ghana. For what? To see churches planted in the villages in northern Ghana. Heard my doorbell ring and an app on the door yesterday afternoon. I went to the door with my neighbor. Said, I thought you were going out of town. I said, that's this coming week. They said, are you going to build a house or build a church? I said, well, not exactly. I said, we are going to plant churches. Where? In villages now who are primary Muslim. We want to see a gospel, preaching, teaching, Bible-oriented, organized, established church in every village in the north. That's bold. But we are going to keep at it. We are going to keep at it until the seed, read Isaiah, till the seed comes again.